This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. The Seminole Maroon Diaspora returns to Jupiter, Florida for a family reunion January 11th to 15th to bring them all together. The Florida Black Historical Research Project, Incorporated, accepted a federal grant. Attendees arrive from within Florida, but also from Oklahoma, Texas, Mexico, the Bahamas, and Trinidad, and possibly even one from South Central Los Angeles. They will take a day-long bus tour of South Florida sites that reference and or honor Seminole Maroon history, and they'll listen to a day of presentations featuring history and life of Seminole Maroons in the Western Hemisphere. They will also screen a film, The Story of the Seminole Negro Indian Scouts of Texas. Attendees will hear oral histories of Seminole Maroon history and autobiographical and personal stories of descendants. They will cap off their visit with a spiritual remembrance featuring sacred presentations by various religious faiths to honor the fallen on both sides, the U.S. military and the Seminole Seminole Maroons, warriors and family members. One can learn more by visiting this website, floridablackhistoricalresearchproject.org. It's spelled out FL, blackhistoricalresearchproject.org. And joining us to film the details for this, yes, historic assembly are organizers Wallace and Jean Tinney. Dr. Wallace Ham Tinney is the granddaughter of the late Seminole Maroon Florence Ehler Jones Ham. Florence left her native home in the village of Mikasuki on the edge of Tallahassee, Florida, some years ago. Dr. Tinney is president of Florida Black Historical Research Project, Inc., the organization founded by her cousin, the late Issa Ham Bryant. Issa, a Seminole Maroon descendant, was one of the driving forces behind the reclamation of Loxahatchee River Park as a battlefield site. Dr. Tinney has worked diligently for the last 15 years to continue the work of honoring the sacred site of her ancestors in and around Loxahatchee River Battlefield Park. Wallace will explain why the Loxahatchee River State Battlefield Park is the focal point for this family reunion. Jean Tinney, her husband, is a retired educator as well. Jean's a Fulbright scholar and is an activist in historic preservation and cultural affairs. He has an academic background in foreign languages, linguistics, and literature. He is founder and director of the Dos Amigos Fair Rosamond Middle Passage Ship Replication Project. Among the many boards on which he sits is the historic Loxahatchee Seminole Maroon Battlefield in Palm Beach County. Wallace and Jean Tinney, welcome to the Seminole Wars Authority. Our pleasure to be here, Patrick. Thank you very much. So Wallace, this is a big deal and big deals don't come cheap. How did you manage to be able to fund such a family reunion? We applied for a grant from the National Trust for Historic Preservation, the National Endowment for the Humanities. The grant was for saving historic sites. We wrote the grant. It's called Telling the Full History, to tell the full history of Loxahatchee River Battlefield Site in Jupiter, Florida. And we have been holding events there to commemorate the battle that was held there in 1838 in the Second Seminole War. 
We have been holding events there since the battlefield was designated or at least discovered to be a battlefield in the 1990s. There were some local people in the Jupiter area, Richard Posick, Steve Carr, and others who brought in Bob Carr from Miami, the archaeologist, because even those had discovered these artifacts in that area, they were able to determine that that was where the 1838 battle took place with General Jessup and Lieutenant Powell. Those two battles were held there. What was the purpose of your grant request? We wrote a Telling the Full History grant to try to bring up the Seminole Maroon story that is connected. Common usage is that we call those participants Black Seminoles, but I also hear Seminole Maroons, and then out West we have the Seminole Negro Scouts. Please tell us how you refer to them and why. The interesting part about the story about the Black Seminoles is the fact that they're called Black because they were just Seminoles. The question is, how were these people viewed? Is there such a long history? Well, let's just put it like this. The history goes back to the 17th century or even the 16th century. And certainly that history has to do with Africans either being here or coming here. And that were Native American groups, as we know, who were black-skinned. Among those were the Yamasi and the Tallahassee and some of the other Native American groups were actually black-skinned people. So all the groups of Native Americans don't always look like the moving versions or the ones that are the ones that people want to identify as Native American. That's part of the problem is that you have these people and then you had these black skinned people who were being in such a difficult story because you have the Native Americans and the Yamasee Native Americans and all of the historians agree that they were black skinned people fighting on the side against the Native people here in Florida at one point. There's all kinds of mix-up, mix-up stuff. And then you have this whole question of maroon and what does the word Seminole really mean, and everybody wants to come up with their definition of what it really means and where did it really come from. But the actuality is that we all know that in this entire hemisphere, we are the only ones who treat Maroons as indigenous people. Everywhere else in the hemisphere, a Maroon is generally someone who was probably either of African descent or if he is of indigenous descent, he was escaping enslavement by the white population and living away but the indigenous people already lived away. So most Maroons all over the hemisphere in the islands in South America, Central America, are basically communities of black people. Here in America, where the word Cimarron became Seminole or Seminole, 
they want to say, when people start writing history or whatever, well, that was a word that belonged to the Creek Indians that was out of their language and it meant runaway. And then somebody else says it was something else. And, you know, and so there are all kinds of distinct because now you have the United States government has recognized a group of Native American people starting with all these treaties and things as Seminoles when there was never really a tribe called Seminole. All kinds of Native American groups are under that umbrella and Black people and Black Native Americans and Black African people and Black people who were formerly enslaved and Black people who were free and Black people who were never enslaved. All kinds of things fall under this umbrella. It's a difficult story because the government and because of the racism in our country, people are just, even the Native American groups, you have the people in Oklahoma actually making the decision to put in their constitution. They don't want to recognize Black people as Seminoles. And it's ridiculous when you go back and you really look at it. Gene? Part of the challenge of telling the full history Getting back to your original question about what's coming up is what we're calling a 185-year Seminole Maroon family reunion in January from the 11th to the 15th. And I think what's going to come out of that is just an awareness of how, I'll just use the word messy, the history is as it has come down to us. Because it came from all different sources, mostly from the colonizer's side. So you have military accounts, sometimes they contradict each other. You have government officials, you have various government agents, and this is all, well, I would say 95%, their perceptions of who people were, how people should be labeled, all in service of their agenda, which was to make this land safe for colonization and settlement. One of the things that will help the listeners and ourselves to frame this is when we look at this history and when we talk about telling the full history, the full history is a lot more than just filling in the missing pieces and the voids and the omissions and misunderstandings and misrepresentations. American history is the history of the land that goes all the way back to the beginning. It's the history of everything and everybody that was ever here. When we look at it that way, it helps us frame the last four or 500 years as part of something much, much longer. When we understand the Native presence here, we use Native and Indigenous as a glib reference to all of these First Nations. How many of them were here? The ones that the Spanish called Tequesta and Ice and all of these, well, there were successions of people. There were people who had other names for themselves. Much of what we'll be doing with this telling the full history is just opening up our individual and collective minds to a fresh look at all of what this history is and how it has shaped the world we know and shaped us because one part of the wisdom that we'll be wanting to bring to this is looking at language and looking at our relationship to land and realizing that everything that happens in the universe stays in the universe. The land holds the memory of everything. We're part of the land, you know, our, our physical bodies, our cells are made from, <laughs> you know, physical matter. We're really given an awakening to what some folks would just call a traditional understanding of 
how to look at the universe, how to look at our place in it. We find that there's so much of a richer narrative in that than just focusing on some of the misguided and uglier facets of what human beings do to each other as being the definition of who we are. I think that that might help give some context to what Wallace was saying and why you could just sense her. <laughs> She's been a valiant warrior in just trying to grasp all of this stuff and bring it together in a cohesive way that recognizes that, well, so much of what we were relying on and calling information and thinking was truth is, well, very questionable. Asking the questions are a good way to healing, because that's what we do need, and reconciliation. So if I'm understanding you correctly, a more accurate term would be Seminole Maroons. We have opted for Seminole Maroon as a much more accurate way of, of describing this, because in a way, all the Seminoles, whether they were identifiably African-American or Native American, were in a sense, maroons. If by maroon, the general definition of maroons has been, as Wallace was saying, throughout the hemisphere, it's been people who escaped from slavery and were able to establish free and independent settlements somewhere away from their oppressors and in places that they could defend, often in very inhospitable terrain, and continued their cultural ways. That whole maroon phenomenon just takes on a, a very different cast on this peninsula of Florida. It's quite different from Jamaica or Suriname or Mexico, Brazil, any of these other places where uh, maroon settlements were known to have been founded. So that what happens is you have a narrative of African self-liberators, as we would call them, making it to Florida, which was when it was under Spain. Even among the colonizers, there was an understanding that that was a different territory. Once you crossed the border, you could be free there. So you had Africans joining indigenous people, and then you had indigenous people escaping from settler encroachment on their land, joining the African self-liberators. So you have this whole phenomenon of folks, and they're having all kinds of cultural and spiritual and even bloodline interactions so to come up with a, a single label, one size fits all, it's kind of difficult. Seminole Maroons sort of captures it maybe better than most terminology. And I might mention that one of the most useful historical records of this is the book that Congressman Joshua Reed Giddings wrote called Exiles of Florida. There he mainly focuses on the Maroons and mainly those who outsiders might describe as being African-American as opposed to Native American. That in itself, again, I think this is where our gathering that we're working up towards in January and the kind of discussion that we're going to be having raises some very interesting questions because when we look at I'm calling them oversimplifying to say for traditional societies because that could mean any number of things. But in a very general way, African traditional societies and Native American traditional societies emphasize the oneness of all things. It's recognizing everybody and everything as a variation on the same theme of this single universe, this single creation, if you will. 
it's sort of an opposite viewpoint to what colonizers brought, where they found it to be in their interest to look for all the differences and divide up and label and fragment because this could be used for that or this group of people could be used in this way and used against that group. So you have a clash of cultures, to say the least, a clash of values between those people who are seeing themselves as an organic part of this universal experience who have cultures where a person's status is based how much they give to society and to their collective well-being as opposed to how much they're able to take from it. It's very alien to traditional societies, too. I think you and, and your listeners by now are probably getting a sense that even though we're focusing on a very specific place, a site in Jupiter, Florida, a battlefield site, and a very specific time period, the issues get a lot broader because we're also looking at the aftermath, what we call the Trails of Tears and Freedom, the people who were captured under a flag of truce. They weren't actually defeated. Although I guess the victors could claim victory in that they got the land that they were able to deport the, the Seminoles who, who were captured. But after that, you know, those who were deported to Oklahoma who survived the Trail of Tears, some of them were able to escape that situation and go to Mexico. And then some of those, the next generation of those who went to Mexico, sought to come back to Texas and become part of the Seminole Negro Indian Scout at Fort Clark in Brackettville, Texas. Brackettville, Texas. We'll come back to that. And then you had this other migration story of those who formerly enslaved Africans who fought on the side of the British because the British welcomed them in, in, during the War of 1812 and were able to occupy that fort in northern Florida. The fort at Prospect Bluff, as we call it today. Some of them migrated to what is now Manatee County, Bradenton and that area, where there was a settlement called Angola, interestingly enough. And then from Angola, come to South Florida, to what's now Miami and Key Biscayne and Cape Florida, where the lighthouse is, and from there migrate to the Bahamas, where their descendants have a free Seminole community on Andros Island. With that perspective, one can better understand this reunion that you've scheduled. So the reunion that we're going to be having is going to include people from the Bahamas, from Mexico, from Texas, from Oklahoma, and from Florida. Actually, some people also went to Cuba. We're going to be bringing descendants. The grant we asked to be able to at least bring two people from each of those areas. And we have dollars coming in for the five-day event. Five days? I'll tell you what the five-day event encompasses. On the 11th, we're going to have a reception for the people coming in. And on the 12th, we're going to have a bus tour of the area, which is Thursday. And you have specific sites that you're intending to go to? Loxahatchee River Battlefield Park, to Fort Jupiter, and then to Fort McCray, which is in Martin County. And we're going to Chachi's Village in Palm Beach County. So we're going to be going in that little triangle. Chachi's Village, Fort Jupiter, and Fort McCray, because what happened was when they 
took them under the flag of truce. They took them to Fort Jupiter. They decided that about 100 of them, it was too crowded at Fort Jupiter. So they took 100 of the people over to Fort McRae. Look at the list of people they took, and it looks as if most of those people might have been classified as of African descent. We're going to be doing ceremonies on each of those sites, or at least representative sites, to cleanse the earth as we do the tour for our visitors. Thursday evening, having a symposium for teachers, but it's open to the public at Palm Beach State College. This symposium, we're going to be looking at a book by Ibram X. Kendi, a professor at Boston University who runs the Anti-Racist Institute there. He wrote a book called Magnolia Flower, which is based on a short story by Zora Neale Hurston, who is a Florida writer. Their eyes were watching God. It includes the Palm Beach hurricane in 1928 and what happened there and how horrible. She has a really good description of that hurricane in that novel. And she, of course, is a Florida legend, a legendary writer in Florida. So she wrote a short story called Magnolia Flower about a Native American, really in her story was a Seminole Native American. The story is written from the point of view of a river the river and a bank talking to each other. Ibram Kendi wrote a children's book called Magnolia Flower based on Zora Neale Hurston's book. So we're going to be talking about that because it is about the Native American and African American uniting for young readers through eighth grade level book. We're going to talk about that. I'm going to be talking about the Saltwater Highway Underground Railroad through Florida. A young man called Stefan Moss has done an incredible rendering that he will talk about in terms of what the teachers can use in the classroom if they want to, so that there can be a broader understanding of what might have been going on or what was going on in Florida prior to its becoming a state and even after it became a state in 1845. This map that he has done will be an incredible resource for the teachers. We have him there to talk to the teachers about this seminal presence in Florida. So what is the significance of this event and this location? Well, the significance of it is more that it is a story that hasn't really been told that much. Is significance. I mean, you have people here living in freedom and living their own lives. When you read through the Army records, you read about, first of all, there were many of the Native Americans here, many of them just mixed blood people. We call some of them black, whatever. They had cattle, they had land, they had enormous fields of plant, and they talk about how rich these agricultural the growth and how the kind of cattle and horses and different things that these people had, they were living their lives. But I think the story is fascinating because many people do not understand how these people are living their lives. Many of them never knew anything about any slavery, even though when you hear the story now, you hear about so-and-so had a hundred slaves, like a map, they'll say, make a note you know, Mikinoki, you saw those big dreadlocks he had growing out of his head, those big plaits. 
those are dreadlocks, big, huge dreads. What does that tell you about Micanopy? Hello, that means he was mixed something other than just plain Native American. Or whatever Native American he was mixed with, they had African blood some kind of way down the line. Because they wouldn't have those big dreads, otherwise dreads, you can't dread. We keep hearing about this thing as the Seminole Wars. But the Seminole were this thing that needed to be removed, this nuisance, this conglomeration of people. People tell us that there were three Seminole Wars. But the Seminoles, who didn't even call themselves Seminoles, but they that in mind, too, so later on. This was just a four decades long assault on their freedom and prosperity. The fact that they having livestock herds and farms, as, as Wallace was saying, and living quite well, not bothering anybody. Yes, they kept welcoming other people who were escaping from whether it was a settler encroachment or enslavement in the colonies to the north. To the colonizers, that might have made them a nuisance, in addition to the fact that the land was coveted. Our buddy on the $20 bill, Andrew Jackson, comes up with this Indian Removal Act. One of the key points that we want to make before we run out of time about what we're doing is not only bringing the story of the Seminole Peace, the Seminole Peace as opposed to just the Seminole Wars. The Seminole Wars have been documented in detail. You have the Sprague book, which is excellent compilation of military history. I mentioned that Joshua Giddings' book, which really points out the key role that the quote-unquote black Seminoles, who we call the Seminole Maroons, played because they were the interpreters and negotiators for a lot of what had to happen. One of our presenting scholars, Dr. Anthony Dixon, he did his whole doctoral dissertation on that whole phenomenon, particularly in the Second Seminole War with Loxahatchee. A key point in all of this comes back to this whole phenomenon of the language we use. We have a history that is so fluid and it doesn't fit all these convenient categories. It says that we have to free ourselves from some of the old concepts that are inadequate. So when we really look at, and we go back to this the African proverb that says, until the lion tells the story of the hunt, the story will always glorify the hunter. And that's kind of what we have. Here, finally, we're giving a voice to the lion to say, well, so how did this hunt? Well, I was just minding my business, and I started hearing the gunshots. <laughs> so, so all of this, I think, is I hope we're helping our, our listeners to grasp not only how necessary, but how actually almost kind of sounds crazy to say it, but exciting and fascinating history, partly because it's not been so well known, but also, and mainly because it fills in the gaps. If you imagine Beethoven's symphony that somebody found and removed all the F-sharps and uh, a great piece of music, critics will talk about it and all, but then when the missing notes go in, all of a sudden it becomes something that everybody understands so much better. You can almost look at it that way. All of these points will be layered one upon the other and seamless experience with what we do in January and beyond, because we definitely look at the family reunion in January as a launch pad for what will come in the future. On that note, I'll mention that it's the 25th anniversary of another family reunion that was done back in 1998, the 160-year family reunion, with the founder, Isaham Bryant, of the Florida Black Historical Research Project, which is the organization doing this. He was able to bring folks from Oklahoma to Florida back in 1998. In Oklahoma, the great Seminole Nation, those are the descendants of survivors of the Trail of Tears who made it to Oklahoma at all, 
is comprised of 14 bands. Two of the bands are called, because of U.S. government interference, those are your Seminole Maroon bands, your Black Seminole bands, if you will. The Cesar Bruner Band and the Dosa Marcus Band are the names. Those who came to Florida, some of them, that was their first time coming to the, what they would regard as their ancestral homeland. The result of that was a lot of very interesting and productive cultural exchanges between Florida and Oklahoma, even to some extent business exchanges. Unfortunately, Isa, who was very much the spirit father of bringing all that together, he passed on. And there was really nobody really in place to just pick it up and continue it. This opportunity we have this year, 25 years after that, is our time to regenerate that and bring not just Oklahoma, but the whole of the diaspora together. And I guess the point that really needs to be emphasized is that while, of course, we see how much this will be beneficial to everybody who identifies as or with Seminole Maroons, this is a major asset really to the whole country. It's when everybody does well, everybody does better. The more we're able to be enriched by knowledge as much as by material wealth, the better we are. I do want to continue so that people will have an idea of what we're doing for the five days. So Friday, all day, we'll be at Palm Beach State College. We'll have scholars coming in, Dr. Anthony Dixon, Dr. Rosalind Howard, Professor Uzi Barham, Martha Barreda, and other local people from our school. Loxahatchee Battlefield Preservationists. And that night, we're going to have a film called Black Warrior Border. Filmmaker is Joseph Hill. He is going to be there. And we'll have the film that night at Palm Beach State College. On Saturday, we'll be at Loxahatchee River Battlefield Park. And we'll have the descendants. We'll be doing oral history stories. That should be really interesting because they're all the different ones will be bringing their stories. And then Sunday, we'll have our usual spiritual remembrance where we blessing of the grounds, and we'll have a keynote addressed by a criminal descendant who became a state senator in Oklahoma, Anastasia Pittman, who is a very outstanding person in We Walk, Oklahoma. That's how our five days generally will go. We're inviting everybody out. We're not asking any money for anything, but we would like people to register so we can have some idea about what we need to prepare for in terms of food and stuff like that. All right. So how do we find out more? We have a website for Florida Black Historical Research Project, F-B-H-R-P-I-N-C dot org. When you get there, there will be a thing for you to click on. We have another website for the conference, and it shows you there what it is and how to get there. And we're also going to put out Eventbrite, just to be sure, because Eventbrite, somehow people respond to Eventbrite who don't respond to other things. So we're going to do both of them, just to kind of be sure we cover our tracks with people. Also, for some people who cannot be there, we're doing live streams. What makes these battles at the Loxahatchee River the focal point for this family reunion? It was 
the turning point in the war because they got so many. There were like about 500, we know, but maybe more people who went because, you know, there weren't that many Seminoles left in the state after the first Seminole War. So this was a real turning point in the war effort for the United States because they were able to lure into this. Again, when we think of this whole drama, folks going about their lives, and then all of a sudden now you're in, they call it a war. You're just trying to send yourself, your family, your freedom. This was just this relentless effort. Some of the legendary leaders like Osceola, he was captured, the same thing, under flag of truce, just dishonorably. Gene, give us a little bit of context. What were the battles leading up to this? And start with Zachary Taylor at Okeechobee. You had the Christmas Day Battle of Okeechobee claimed victory, but all that happened was that the Seminoles, as they say, vanished into the wilderness. From Christmas Day 37, then by January 15th, 38, just weeks later, we had the first of the battles of the Loxatchee River, which is the historical marker calls it Powell's Battle. This was where a naval expeditionary force, they were able to capture a Seminole woman, sort of guided them into the area, but the Seminoles knew about it. There was an ambush. The Navy people were able to escape. General Jessup, who was supreme commander of all of this, decided this retaliatory battle would take place, and that was on January 24th. So there were 1,500 American troops against a few hundred Seminoles, and troops came with cannons and cavalry and Congreve rockets and artillery and all of that. Here again, they didn't really defeat the people on the battlefield, but again, faded into the wilderness. But now the wilderness that they faded into, farther south, but there was not much there to sustain them. So that by the time General Jessup could say, okay, we'll call a truce and invite the people to come to Fort Jupiter, a lot of people were relieved enough to go there, except that not expecting what would happen is that they would just simply be captured. Jeff did write the government and get them to just let it go to his land. According to the records, the government said no, no. That was really important, too, because he said that's not his job to these people, because the whole thing for the whole state of Florida was about catching escaped African-American people who liberated themselves from the awful bondage of slavery out down to Florida. The whole war against these people stems from these so-called owners, people who claimed ownership to other people. And they petitioned the government to go down and reclaim their property. Wallace, I noticed on the schedule something. Language. What is that all about? We're going to be talking about the language because our language is colonized. We speak a colonized language. As an African-American people, we are always talking in a language that denigrates us. The language itself is filled with derogatory ways to look at Black people, to talk about Black people, to say, wow, and he was the only, he's the only Black man to ever do this. Or, you know, like everything is geared to 
say, well, if you're the only one, then that means that the rest of them, what was wrong with them? I'm just saying that the language is a weird kind of way, and it's a difficult task before us. But we've worked really hard to get people to say enslaved rather than calling people slaves to say that people were enslaved. We're working on runaway. There is no such thing as a runaway Although historically you will see it mentioned, oh, those runaways this and runaways that. But children run away. Grown people were liberating themselves from wrongful captivity. We've been working with this for years trying to get people. And you have people who say, well, they were slaves, but they weren't. This is the name attributed to them by the colonizers who justified this and put this in their constitution, put this in their laws, and made a fugitive slave law, all of this language and all of this thing to justify the enslavement of people and the captivity of other human beings against their will. And so this Language is a part of the lexicon of the colonizers. We are trying to take this language and force people to begin to look at it and to not use some of it and to use other words because that is the only way we're going to be able to decolonize some of the minds. We got to decolonize the language. What we're doing is not an attempt to convert or convince anybody. It's just look present a healthier alternative and say, look, while we have this gift of life, we have the potential to create a better, healthier, more respectful and self-respectful society. Self-respectful means also being more responsible. It means taking a, a role, an approach to life that is strange territory for many of us who, who call ourselves American. But it's almost people being freed from addictions and that kind of thing where, yeah, you're being thrown into a strange new world, but it's a better world to be in, if you put it that way. It really does come back to the choice of living harmoniously or not. And unfortunately, we've used the word colonized and colonizers quite frequently because that is very much the kind of damage that has to be undone. The mindset of people who thought they were coming to some land of unlimited opportunity to just exploit, and if you find, oh, there are fur-bearing animals here, well, trap and kill every one of them you can until there are none left. In the last two generations of people were coming from the South Carolina community who were immigrating into Florida, coming into Florida, and becoming a part of the Seminole society in Florida. And those Gullah Geechee language, you can find that that language influences the Seminole language that is found in Texas and other places among the Black Seminoles or the Seminole Maroons. That that is the language. And Dr. Eon Hancock has been doing a lot of recovery of that language. He did a lot of recording of people speaking the language, and he is doing a lot of stories and different things, way of trying to help the people hold on to that language. And so are the Seminoles. The Florida Seminoles are doing the same thing with the language, the Muscogee language. 
many of the Native First Nations are engaged in that same thing. Yes. Literally recovering the language. Yeah. Some of these languages, the last Native speaker is very old or has passed on. Right. All of them are trying to save their languages because if nobody speaks the language, then it will die. So people are making an active effort to save the languages. And the language is going to be a very, very key component of, and I'm glad you asked that too, Patrick, because this is a key component of what this whole effort will be focusing on. There's a Lakota Tioskaya ghost horse. He talks about how the native languages, he said our languages don't have nouns, so that when you talk about an object, the object is active. It's busy being what it is. The pencil in your hand is busy penciling. The language itself is recognizing everything around us as being living presence with a place in the universe and a right to be here. Even on that level of language, in giving ourselves that freedom to liberate our minds, it's interesting that Wallace and myself and our daughters all have our academic backgrounds in English and language and literature and linguistics and all of that. So we come equipped to see this and realize just how important it is because the words we use shape the thoughts that we have and the thoughts we have decide our actions and our decisions. What we had here in the 17th century, 18th century, was about the best example of how people could live together harmoniously in a society and get together, love each other, allow each other to be who they were, and at the same time, respect your traditions, you respect mine, we grow our crop, we have our families, and those people lived together for a long time, a long time before it was decided that they needed to go. It's an important story. It's significant because there's a good story here that we never hear about, how people lived harmoniously, worked harmoniously together, and didn't fight each other and weren't trying to get rid of each other. But, of course, it was they did have a common enemy. And that's what we're calling the Seminole Peace, as opposed to the Seminole Wars. The wars were waged against them, but they were waging peace. And the irony, of course, you know, we get back to that whole thing of slaveholders in the English-speaking colonies in the North claiming that all these people in Florida, these African-Americans, are runaways, they're property. Well, these people were there for generations. (laughs) Yes, yes. See, what happened when Florida became a territory in the United States, that brought slavery back between 1819 and 1845 when it became a state. You had these plantations, land grants and all kinds of things that people got, whatever way they were trying to encourage people to colonize the state. Now you have a whole new group of people who are not Native American people. They are people coming from plantations in Florida. See, it didn't exist like that before. That's why you have a whole different group of people who are part of this roundup, because they have now, between 1819 and 1845, you have all these people 
who are now escaping from these plantations, who are not necessarily a part of those people who were there before and living harmoniously. The story is not a simple story. It's a very complex story, but it's a story that needs to be told. Now, Wallace and Jean, I need to apologize. I confused your group with the group in Brackettsville, Texas. You may be sister organizations, but you're not the same one. Please set the record straight. <laughs> well, we were fortunate enough to visit Brackettville, and they do Seminole Days as a, a yearly observance in September. It's mainly focused around the heritage of the Seminole Negro Indian Scouts. And those folks, in turn, were second generation of the folks who migrated with John Horace from Oklahoma into Mexico. Some of those came from Mexico back into Texas. Uh, Fort Clark is located, was located, in Brackettville. So you have that descendant community there. You have the Seminole Negro Indian Scout Cemetery honoring Medals of Honor uh, for their service. There's only one day out of the year, and only people who belong to that community of descendants are allowed to go to Seminole Canyon, which is a state park, to the area where the Negro Indian Scouts and camps, where they could actually strategically was located and natural, very scenic uh, canyon. There's a very rich heritage there that's very much tied to the land and the, the local geography. That's what's happening there. The idea that they will be one of the contingents, if that's the right word, that come to Lakahatchee Battlefield in January and they get to meet some of their folks with slightly different stories from Mexico, from the Bahamas, from Oklahoma, and from Florida itself should make for some interesting conversations and networking and people finding common ground. When we were there, for example, we discovered that Seminole Negro Indian Scouts got a special dispensation from the Army to configure their Army base, their encampments, along traditional Seminole lines rather than in the grid format. You know how military organizations are very much into doing the same thing the same way everywhere. You start realizing there's a lot of subtleties and nuances, and, and of course, as with the Buffalo Soldiers, the whole relationship of those folks, African-Americans who were in the military, who were in the so-called Indian Wars, which makes it sound like, well, okay, so were you part of the problem instead of part of the solution? Uh, well, you know, they were able to cooperate in other ways, much like you hear the stories of certain Indian nations or part of enslaving African-Americans. What you end up with is there's a whole spectrum of experiences, the conversation and dialogue that will be opening up in January will be at least a beginning of exploring all of these, what really happened. Because we're in this time of awakening, whereas in the past there may have been stories and legends that were passed on because they served a purpose but may have not been as accurate, well now we're in a place where we can start looking at the more accurate facts Knowledge is power. We all come away more knowledgeable and therefore more empowered. That'll be mission accomplished, but the best is yet to come. With that, it's time to wrap it up. Wallace and Gene Tinney, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you, Patrick. For, Thank you for having, for having us, us, Patrick. And uh, keep up all the great work you're doing. Yes, please do. Thank you. 
This podcast is copyright 2022, the Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.